We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that brings you independent, accurate and accessible STEM content, so that's science, technology, engineering and maths from Tasmania. This show is proudly recorded at Edge Radio in Hobart. It's premium youth station, so head to edgeradio.org.au for more info on their community radio stuff. My name is Neve Chapman and I'm really pleased to be joined today in studio with Dr. Larissa Bartlett, who's a dear friend of mine. So I'm really excited to talk about your PhD work, which focuses on mindfulness. Now, I'm sure many of our listeners will have heard of mindfulness before, but it's probably good to actually define what it is because I know several people that kind of interchange mindfulness with meditation and that's they're linked but that's not necessarily true so we've got an expert on hand yeah what is mindfulness yeah you're so right the label gets used in so many different ways including in marketing these days so you I think it's it's helpful so mindfulness is defined as that um, intentionally paying attention to current experience with an attitude of openness and curiosity. And that sounds really simple, but I thought I might just unpack the three parts of that definition. The first one being intention. When we walk into a room, we intend to hold a certain attitude or a certain focus. We make that decision before we walk into the room. We're much more likely to be able to hold it. So it's maintaining that sense of I'm intentionally paying attention. How many people have been told to pay attention in their lives? How many times have we been told how to pay attention? I must admit, I, I've been told a lot over the course of my life. Pay attention, Larissa. I now know how to. Um, and it's really about paying, bringing our mind and focusing on the thing that we're wanting to pay attention to. I think it's sort of being aware that we only know things because we're interpreting feeds of information that are coming at us and those feeds of information come at us we receive them through our senses and so what we taste what we hear what we feel what we smell and what we touch tells us what's going on in our immediate environment and then the thoughts that are in our head make sense of it of those feeds and so being more mindful means that we're paying more attention to the feeds of information that are coming in and how we're making sense of them. So then the way in which we're making sense of them brings me to the third part of the definition, which is this attitude of openness and curiosity. And so if we're intentionally paying attention to current experience, so therefore that's the temperature and the, how comfortable we are in our seat or the fact that I've got you sitting in front of me so I can see you, I've got this odd microphone on my head <laughs> which makes me feel slightly strange, and being open and curious about all of those feeds and noticing the thoughts and interpretations and fear. So I'm, I'm, I, get, I get anxious when I'm performing in any way, shape or form and so I have a headset on. I'm in a, I'm in a radio studio. I have a layer of anxiety that's sort of sitting beneath my surface here. I'm aware of that and being aware of it means that I will be more able to choose how I respond rather than just reacting to what's hap what's immediately presenting to me. If we're walking down a path and we live in a, um, a village where there is a fear of bear raids <laughs> and I'm walking down the path and I see 
a fairy object behind a bush. My immediate reaction, because of the history and the stories and what's gone on before, I see it, those stories inform my perception of that event. So I get panicky. I go, oh my God, there's a bear. Right, I need to run back to the village. Whereas if I was more mindful of that, I might go, oh, I'm just walking down the path. It's entirely likely that that's a rabbit or another small animal. It's, I'm recognising the fear message. I've got the fear message. But actually, in this circumstance, it's not appropriate. It's really just a bunny and I should just keep on walking. So it gives you the capacity to be able to uh, respond rather than react. That's really interesting. It actually kind of, that definition and the way you've just described it um, reminds me of how, you know, people are taught to listen. Like, I feel like that's a very adult thing that you get taught to actively sit and wait for the information that somebody's going to tell you and like absorb it and be open to it whereas most of us say actually we've said something and now we're just waiting planning our next response yeah whereas actually we should be openly engaging and being present and like actually being in that moment rather than just being five steps ahead absolutely it's an it's a really good example the listening one because also the first few words that might come out of my mouth, you might be going, oh, making sense of that. And it sends you off on your um, journey to make sense of the first few things that I've said. And you might have missed the next few things that I've said. What kind of benefits do people experience from mindfulness? Or, and are they physiological or, or mental? And I mean, the two are intertwined. So how can yeah, you? you can't take the head <laughs> off the body. <laughs> we tried to do it for the 20th century, but we're, <laughs> I think we're reattaching it. One of the most commonly found consistent beneficial effects of people or of having higher levels of mindfulness is that people are less stressed and if you think about the you interpret the definition of mindfulness in the context of stress so we know that stress is the reaction that occurs a series of automatic reactions that occur inside of us in response to us interpreting or perceiving something as a threat and it is uh, absolutely, absolutely, that's the flight and fight response. What happens, we, and we zoom our attention in on the thing that's threatening us so that we can monitor it. And then a series of physiological um, uh, and neurobiological effects occur throughout our body that prepare us um, for fighting or fleeing the stressor. That includes things like increasing our heart rate, um, it changes our sort of cardiometabolic function so that we're not really able to digest food. That's something that can wait till later. Our, our attention, as I mentioned, is focused on the thing that's, that's threatening us. And so when we're in this stressed state, it's quite hard for us to see the bigger picture and calm ourselves down. And one of the things that mindfulness enables us to do is to be able to say, OK, I'm going to re-see what's going on. I can re-see this bunny or re-see this furry animal in the knowledge that it may or may not, using that curiosity and openness, it may or may not be a threat. And so if we're not perceiving quite so many threats, then we're not having the stress response as much. There's a really good example of this as well in terms of living with pain. So pain activates the same regions, the same um, neurological pathways in our brain as stress does. So when we are in extreme pain, we focus on that pain. We're very, very aware of it and it makes us tense. We stress up against it. Is that just extreme pain? You know, oh, I've just burnt my hand. Or is that also like chronic pain? Uh, both. Okay. Yeah, cool. absolutely. Um, for people who are living with chronic pain, it's always in the background. And if you can think of somebody who's always stressed, then they're always in that. They're almost sort of ready, ready to react all the time. Same thing with pain. If you've got a chronic pain in the background, then you're, you've, you're closer to your threshold, I yeah, guess. Yeah, there's lower I mean. re resilience. That's, that's Absolutely, yes. 
And so the benefits of being more mindful have been well shown in the, in the research literature. Um, then in the 1970s, uh, Professor John Cabot had a, a strong history of Buddhist meditation, um, but was based at the University of Massachusetts Medical School in the US. He is a medical doctor and he was working with people who were living with chronic pain and there was no treatment for these people. And, and it's very common in, in today's world where people are living with this chronic pain. There's no treatment. They just have to learn how to live with it. And so he introduced mindfulness-based stress reduction as a training program to help these people learn how to become more mindful to see whether it then helped them to live better with their symptoms of chronic pain and it does so what we've found is that mindfulness as a quality can be cultivated through practice and the practices are uh, meditative practices where we, we sit and actually cultivate these these skills of mindfulness so that was going to be actually my next question is that is it an innate ability or is it a learned skill what type of examples are there of you know, passing on the skill or acquiring it. Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, mindfulness is a natural human quality and we all have it to varying degrees and we'll all be more mindful in one day on, than we might be on another day. But we can become more mindful more regularly through practising being mindful. If you want to be able to pick up and play the violin whenever you want to, you need to have practised it. You need to have cultivated the skills. I I can, I'm not. I'm no violinist, believe me. If I was to pick up a violin, I can, I can do that and I can hold the bow against it and I can make make a sound but you won't want to listen to me <laughs> um, but if I practice it for half an hour every day for two or three months you will find at the end of that three months that I'll be able to pick out a tune I may not be particularly good at it but I'll be getting better at it and that means that whenever I want to pick up the violin after three months of practice I'll be better placed to be able to play a tune and it's very much the same with the mindfulness meditation. There's a wide range of resources available to, for guided, um, guiding meditations. Um, principally, you close the eyes, pay attention to current experience, so the sensations of the breath coming in and out of the body or the sensations that you can feel your feet and your knees and your thighs and your bum and your body, just paying attention to the sensations that are in the body for a period of time, noticing that the mind wanders because the mind does, that's its job. It's always making sense of information that it's fed um, and then if we get a, uh, then we notice that our mind's gone off on a story because it's off interpreting something and it get, or it gets a trigger so it goes off on a memory, something recent, relevant or repetitive usually and what we do is we notice that the mind's wandered. We don't go, we don't write ourselves, we don't judge ourselves for it. You're just curious. Oh, okay, you went there. Now's not the time for that. Right now I'm practicing, I'm in training. I'm going to bring my attention back, get better at placing my attention where I'm intending to place it. Bring the attention back to the sensations in the body and you just continue to do that over a period of time and you're effectively building a muscle of attention in the brain. And actually what's happening in your brain is we're building neuronal capacity in regions of the brain that enable us to have greater attentional control. So you find that people who have been practicing mindfulness have smaller amygdala, which is the region of the brain that governs our stress response and that's less connected in with other regions of the brain. And we have um, greater density in the regions of the brain that govern executive function and attention. So you actually see physiological changes based on having this practice as a regular activity that you do. Yes. So there's good evidence after the mindfulness-based stress reduction course, which runs for eight weeks. At the end of that eight-week course, provided people have been doing the meditation practice, it's enough time for changes to have taken place in the brain that make the skills of mindfulness more immediately accessible. 
So that's really interesting because so there is a physiological difference, but obviously we can't really look at people's structures of their brains too readily. So is there a way that we can measure how your mindfulness skills or your degrees of mindfulness from individual to individual, or is it really um, person dependent? Mindfulness is pretty much an internal quality. So we can we can see using neurological imaging, as I've mentioned, the changes in the brain that occur, um, but self-report questionnaires are typically the way in which we detect a person's mindfulness in in research so we can and people are mindful to varying degrees there's actually six or seven different mindfulness questionnaires out there where you can um, assess your degree of mindfulness some of them have got different um, dimensions in them so we um, include looking at being non-judging and having greater attentional control and greater compassion and so on. Um, but yes, principally in research and the way in which we look at changes between before and then after training is by self-report questionnaires. There is a bit of an issue around that because obviously we're very... Um, self-report questionnaires have some inherent bias in them. It's really about what I say about myself. And if you've spent eight weeks learning about... If you can imagine if I do a questionnaire now and then spend eight weeks... learning about what it is I've just done the questionnaire about and investing a fair bit of time and effort in over that eight weeks it's quite likely that I'm going to and I'll be more familiar with the language of the construct in the second time I do the questionnaires so it's quite likely that self-report questionnaires are um, providing a slightly higher rating than might be obtained um, through more objective measures or through other sources one of that's fed into some of the research that I've done um, for my doctorate, which was to v- develop a, um, an observed mindfulness questionnaire. Because one of the things that we have found through research is it's not just my own stress that I'm improving through becoming more mindful, it's also my stress-related behaviours. And those behaviours include my interpersonal relationships as well as um, the way in which I care for myself, the, my capacity to... Um, make good choices about what I eat and my exercise and so on. That's a really interesting concept that looking at your observed behaviours is um, one of the ways that we could perceive how mindful you are or how stressed you are. I hadn't really thought of that before as a way that we could actually measure stress. Yeah. Really interesting way to flip it on its head. We've probably all of us sat next to a stress cadet at one time or another, (laughs) you know, and or I might, you you might, we might have been, we might have been the stress cadet (laughs) at different times and we know that stress impacts on our relationships and so my, my research was mostly focused on mindfulness in the workplace and um, stressed employees have a ripple effect in, in their workplaces. We know that people who are really stressed struggle to um, learn new information they struggle to manage their relationships in the way that they may have wanted to have managed them, looking back on them later. Um, and so there's, there is some evidence that mindfulness is a quality that's noticeable to other people. So what I was doing was picking that out a little bit and find out, well, in what ways? Obviously, mindfulness is an internal quality, so I'm really only assessing um, what's noticeable to other people. And so um, my measure, I've developed a new measure, which I'm in the process of, I've just submitted my paper for publication. Um, uh, Thank you. I just can't wait to get it out there. Um, But it's a a brief um, questionnaire that I might ask. So if I did a self-report questionnaire, I report on my own mindfulness. You know me quite well, Neve. so you could actually report on my observed mindfulness. And then we look at the correlation between those two. Mm -hmm. 
and we actually get a similar correlation between observer reports and self-report as we do between self-report and the physiological objective measures of neurological changes and blood pressure changes and so on. So I think it's probably, possibly, more accurate in a scientific sense, but I don't want to dismiss the value of internal perceptions of well-being because actually I think they're as legitimate and valid as, as any other measures. Yeah, definitely. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. In just a moment, we'll be talking more about mindfulness with my special guest, Dr. Larissa Bartlett. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. Today, we're talking about mindfulness. My name is Neve Chapman, and I'm joined by my guest, Dr. Larissa Bartlett. So it's really interesting that you've kind of um, taken us to considering mindfulness in the workplace. And obviously, we're in a transient time of workplace dynamics Mind at indeed. the moment. Yes. And um, I think generally, you know, for the last probably 10 years, we've been in a transient time. Generally, workplaces are really pushing to be more inclusive and diverse, which is great. But that also leads to greater flexibility in working arrangements, more transient working arrangements. Mm. Um so more and more people are probably working in environments that may not have necessarily been considered work. And I'd imagine that mindfulness is probably a skill that benefits most workplaces. But um, I mean, you're the expert. So is mindfulness something that in terms of occupational health or, or work is particularly important or beneficial for set areas? Or because all of us experience stress to some degree, is it something that we should be c- cognizant or mindful of and um, generally for our workforce? Um, look, I think it's probably a, um, a generic skill. It's almost, uh, it, I would think, so we know that optimism and self-efficacy are two qualities, core qualities that um, correlate with better performance and well-being at work. Um, and that's consistent. And so in terms of um, mental health and the capacity to cope with stress and so on, optimism and self-efficacy are considered to be core um, qualities that are uh, instrumental and positive. I would say mindfulness is probably... The research is starting to, I think, show that mindfulness is another one of those core um, qualities. Um, and again, like optimism and self-efficacy also it's open to development, so we can we can become more so. Um, in workplace mental health theory, there's certainly um, a a need for us to look when we're looking about uh, mental health. We need to look at organisational and structural um, contributors to poor health, mental health outcomes, and that's things like um, works schedule scheduling and um, the inv- physical environment in which we le- work, and so on. And then we have, at the other end of the spectrum, we need to have a safety net. We need to have the capacity to be able to identify a problem when it's there and treat it appropriately um, for the employee who's currently suffering. So we need to be able... And that's things like um, uh, counselling services, um, leave entitlements, return to work programs, um, and role accommodations so that we can structure a role so that it'll be less stressful for people when they return to work after um, a period off due to mental health. And then in the middle of those three things, we have a capacity building component where um, if employees themselves and the teams in which they work are more resilient, then they can 
apply human qualities to perhaps better coping with the work demands that are presented to prevent them from becoming unwell. We know that sustained levels of chronic stress and high chronic stress leads to poor mental health and poor physical health. And so um, it's really, I, I guess, I'm, my work has very much focused on prevention. And so I'm really looking at those top two, the structural components of the workplace that contribute to poor mental health outcomes and the capacity to prevent the development of pro- problems associated with high demand jobs. That's very interesting. So are you able to talk about any of your preliminary findings or what you did um, in more detail? Yeah, sure. So um, my first study was a meta-analysis. So I pulled uh, data from randomised control trials that had been conducted in workplaces of mindfulness training programs around the world. And there were 25 studies included in this review, which was um, conducted a couple of years ago. Um, And what I found was there was a... So I've mentioned mindfulness-based stress reduction before as a, this very well-evidenced program for health benefits. Um, workplaces, so this the MBSR program involves classes each week for two and a half hours and then participants are encouraged to do half an hour to 45 minutes a day of meditation practice it's over two weeks. It is an intensive program. Um, workplaces are very much attracted to the outcomes of mindfulness training, but it's very difficult for them to implement, as you can imagine, a, a program that's quite so time intensive. And so what's happened has been that uh, there's, a, there's a huge market out there of mindfulness programs that are promoted into workplaces, um, which are nowhere near the same dose or training dose as the evidenced programs. So in my research, I wanted to look at whether changing the dose and format of mindfulness training um, reduced or negated the effectiveness of it in uh, when it was rolled out in work settings. But in fact, what we found was that irrespective of the dose, there was still a consistent benefit for reduced, reduced employee stress, um, reduced symptoms of mental health problems like depression and anxiety. Um, we had improved well-being, sleep improved across the board, which, which is a really important contributor to well-being and, and resilience. And um, what was the other one? I have. I also looked at performance outcomes. Ah, oh, okay. So workplace performance. And this I looked at particularly because in the marketing literature for these programs, when they're promoted into workplaces, it's all about improving your employee yeah. performance, which I thought was really interesting because actually what we know is that it's good for our health. We don't really know that it's good for our performance but better healthy, you know, more healthy employees perform better. You can make that. That's a logical logical pathway. Um, but in fact, the despite these studies all being conducted in workplace settings, none of them had included, uh, or not none of them, four of the studies had reported uh, on a measure of performance. Oh, okay. And so most of them were still focused on employee health and well-being. And the ones that focused on performance um, were, the results were ambiguous. We had the same number of positive and same number of negative effects. But I think that's also probably a limitation of of the field in that most of those studies stopped within, either straight after training or within a couple of months of training. And you probably need to carry on to see if you've got lasting benefits. And I really think that the performance benefits are a flow-on effect of being more healthy and more resilient and more mindful. And so so I think that the studies with longer-term follow-up are really needed to be able to show that and also the methods for assessing performance in workplace research need to be further developed. 
So that's a really interesting point that you made about like the in irrespective of the dose, there is a trend towards a positive outcome in a number of things, mm. like sleep, stress, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, does that also depend on the mode of delivery? So I'd imagine the really intensive first method that was founded by that guy in the Yeah, John Kabat-Zinn, um, yes. Yeah. That that was probably a person delivering to a small class yes. meditation and guiding them through the skill development. Whereas yes. now we don't really do that many face-to-face classes. Like as a society, we've very much moved online. And I mean, I'm flabbergasted by how many mindfulness apps exist. Yeah. Some yeah. of them are very good. Um, but is there a difference? So dose is one thing, but does it also depend on the mode of delivery or is it, does that not really make a difference? It's a really good question. Um, so Mindfulness training programs, you're right, absolutely came out of the small group face-to-face training format. Um, What has been shown is that online delivered versions of the same program, provided they're delivered using an online system that enables an interaction between participants amongst themselves and between the teacher responding to questions and so on with with their group, that seems to deliver the same level of effectiveness which is is awesome. It really presents, it really means that that training program is potentially quite scalable using online methods, but it does require that degree of interactivity. And I do know this because the third project of my doctorate um, was to assess a mindfulness app for its effectiveness. Because at the time when I started my PhD, there there was all, as you mentioned, (laughs) hundreds of mindfulness apps out there um, with quite considerable claims around them in the market but there was not a single randomised control trial published of any app at the time, or mindfulness app at the time that I'd started. And so um, none of those studies, 25 studies that I reviewed, were of of, of an app. Yeah, wow. Okay, wow. None of that, no. Since then, there has been five or six apps, um, RCTs of, of mindfulness apps published, and fortunately their results align somewhat with mine. So my project looked at a mindfulness app entirely on its own, compared with a mindfulness app delivered with four classes over a period of eight weeks. So the um, participants turned up to a a seminar um, and they could attend either in person or online over the course of that eight weeks. And then I had a waitlist control group. So I had a three-arm randomised control trial and what I found was that the people who had the classes supporting the app um, had a significant benefit for reduced psychological distress and increased mindfulness. And that over time, at six-month follow-up, those benefits continued to develop in some cases. And in particular, for the observed mindfulness outcomes from my, oh, from my yeah. new measure, it was more noticeable at six months um, that somebody was more mindful than immediately at the end of training. However, the people who were entirely self-guided using the app um, hardly used it at all, <laughs> and um, those who did used it a little bit, and then the benefits seemed to attenuate over time. And so, uh, there's a there's a lot of behaviour change theory out there, which looks at how people actually learn and integrate new knowledge that then can change their behaviours and help them um, to become make healthier choices or become more mindful or whatever it is we're we're, we're aiming to achieve through an intervention. Um, that we need to have that real-time feedback. We need to have um, the capacity to converse with other people and uh, lay down and tease out our learning as we're developing it so that it can become 
Um, Obviously, we can consolidate it, really. Yes, that's that's a good word. That's really interesting. So we're almost out of time, Larissa, but what do you think this means kind of for like the future direction? You know, we've talked about that we're in this transient work environment. You know, do you think that in the future this will become something that we recognise as a core skill that we need to foster in our workforce or is that the hope and it's driving more evidence to really inform those types of practices? Um, uh, look, I think that there's enough evidence out there for those like me who are, in, who are across the evidence to be quite hopeful. Um, I do think that there is a need for some really good large public health kind of studies looking at the effect of mindfulness at population level before we can... Uh, consider it to be a quality that like hope and op- like optimism and, and self-efficacy. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. So you've been listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast. We love bringing you science-related content and hope you've enjoyed the show. My guest today was Dr. Larissa Bartlett, who is an expert in mindfulness, and I'm really pleased that I was able to tease out some of that expertise, um, particularly at this time. I'd like to thank the behind-the-scenes team. So that's Meredith Castles in production and Olivia Holloway. My name's Neve Chapman, and it's been my pleasure to bring you this show today. Please look us up on social media, like, share, follow, tweet, subscribe, all of that good stuff Um, and please be safe and well yes absolutely go well everybody thank you very much for having me Neve thank you Larissa